So we're going to talk about some uh, panfish tonight, crappie, bluegill, and some white perch. Welcome to the Fish Nerd Podcast, smart talk about fish, fishing, and eating fish. That is always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true. I'm Dave Perry, the Wicked Fisher, and here are the Fish Nerds. Welcome to a special edition of the Fish Nerds. I love special editions. <laughs> I know. It's like an after-school special if we were still in school. It really is. And this is one that's really going to be great for like people who like to cook. <laughs> Why would is you that say w- that? Well, isn't it about um, pans? Yeah. Oh, God. Boy. Yeah. Man. <laughs> rough. Pan fish is the oh, topic. Oh, pan fish. Pan fish is the topic, and that is uh, by Tim Moore, a good friend of ours. Tim Moore, who's packing the house at New Hampshire Fishing Game these days with his seminars. Right. And you could find uh, information about Tim Moore at timmooreoutdoors.com. Find him on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And uh, he's really made a name for himself in New Hampshire the last couple of years. He really has, and it's not by accident. He's been working very hard at it. I, he's he's kind of, I think, the hardest working person I know. Uh, yeah, in fishing. I'm not even sure that's the caveat for me. No? I don't know of anybody that works harder than he does. Well, there you go. I know I don't. <laughs> I'm just saying. You know, all the people I know kind of go home at 5, and he's uh, he doesn't go by the clock. Uh-uh. So he's always on. So, um, well, you know, the advantage he has, Dave, he's really old. Yes. yes. Yeah. So his kids have all moved out. He's got grandkids. And now he's got time to, to do his thing. Yeah. Well, and he does it really well. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we we are gonna uh, run some clips from his very successful seminar on pan fishing through the ice. specifically cover uh, tips to make you more productive, so some things to make you, regardless of what you're fishing for, more productive uh, as, as an ice angler. Um, some of the gear, there's gear out there today that's designed specifically to make ice fishing easier, which will in turn make you more productive on the ice. So I'm going to talk about some of that gear briefly, and then we'll talk about how to uh, locate and catch uh, crappie and bluegill and white perch. And- now at this point, we should take a little time to give you a background on Tim Moore. Tim Moore has been fishing the area for years, decades, grew up in the area. I met him about 10 years ago on the Bellamy Reservoir. He was fishing kind of out and away. I went over and said hi, and he was telling me about his spots and sharing information about the Vexilar that he was using, the sonar unit, when people really weren't using that very much. Um, and then he started a guide service. So he's a full-time licensed New Hampshire fishing guide and hunting guide here in the seacoast, but he guides all over New Hampshire. Uh, he's an outdoor writer and a promoter. Uh, he's a seminar speaker and also produces Tim Moore Outdoors TV. He does mostly kayak fishing guide services in the summer, but he'll do pretty much any kind of fishing uh, guides in the summer. But in the winter, that's when he really shines. And frankly, I think he's a leader in the ice fishing world here in New England. When I learned ice fishing in the Midwest, in Indiana, a lot of those same techniques are really foreign out here. They uh, they 
did not use small jigs and jigging rods typically. They would only set up tip-ups, people fishing in the Northeast. And Tim, every year, goes out to Clam headquarters. Clam is a big ice fishing company, probably the biggest, um, certainly the fastest growing. Every year, he goes out and gets trained on the latest ice fishing stuff from Clam International. And uh, he has all his clam gear, his ice armor, all this stuff. Big fan of clam because I think it works and it is great gear. And here is Tim talking about Dave Gentz, who is the founder of Clam International. He is Mr. Ice Fishing, they call him, out from the Midwest. He is an innovator. He's, his family designed the, the flip-over fish traps, shelters that you see. He was the first one to take a Vexilar sonar flasher off his boat, mount it to a box with a transducer. He was the first one to ever watch his jig go down on the Vexilar through the ice. He's responsible for a lot of the products and, and really just a general way of thinking today. Tim has one secret that he lives by, and if you've ever fished with him on the ice, you know what it is. Mobility is kind of going to be the underlying theme. The more mobile you are, the easier it is for you to move, the more fish you can put your lure in front of. Just like trolling on Lake Winnipesaukee um, or casting to bass. The more times, the more fish you put your lure in front of, the better chance you have of catching more fish. And that's what basically what I'm going to talk about. Especially during the middle of the day when um, the fish, when the bite slows down, and, and that's when, like ice fishermen, we find all kinds of or women, you know, creative things to do in the middle of the day. We cook food, we play frisbee, we've invented all kinds of games and drinking games or whatever we do when the fishing slows down in the middle of the day. Well, it doesn't doesn't have to be like that. When I was a kid, my father used to say, let's find something to do because the fish just aren't biting right now. I don't believe that. They're not actively seeking food, but I'll tell you what, if you put a lure in front of their face and you make it do what it's supposed to do, they'll eat it. You just got to get it there and they're not going to come to you. Be as efficient in in your actions when you're on the ice. What, I have this thought that kind of runs through my mind the whole time I'm on the ice. Every time I do something, I'm thinking, how can I make that easier? Well, being efficient makes things a lot easier. Putting things back where they belong, not leaving gear all over the ice. So if, if the fishing dies out where I am and I want to move, it's easy for me to move. It doesn't take a long time for me to move. Was a kid, I first, or even a young adult, I first started ice fishing on my own. I'd I'd pull up to the hole. Now tell me if this sounds familiar. I'd take my auger out of my sled. I'd drill a hole. I'd set it down. I'd get my skimmer out of my sled. I'd skim up my hole. I'd set it down. Maybe electronics. Get that out of the sled. Set it down. Uh, maybe I had a jet sled with a bucket to sit on. I get my bucket out. I set the bucket down or set my chair up. You see where I'm going now? I got all this stuff on the ice. Well, there are no fish here. I need to move to the to another hole. Either one that I've already drilled, or I got to go drill another hole. Well, now I got to pick up my skimmer and pick up my auger and pick up my bucket, maybe pull my tip-ups, put that stuff all back in a sled. I move on to the next spot. I take it all out again. You see where I'm going with this? It gets old. It gets old talking about it. It gets even older when it's 20 degrees or there's 30-mile-an-hour wind gusts, and then you find yourself doing this all day because you don't want to go home, but you don't want to move to another spot when you should move to another spot. So fish from your sled, whether it's a jet sled, whether it's a kid's plastic sled, or whether it's a fish trap that you're pulling behind you. Take something out, drill your hole, put it back. We've got a system with auger racks and gear racks and places to put everything. Everything has its place. When we use something, the, even the littlest thing like um, the blade cover, you know, it's really easy if I know I'm going to be in one area to just set the auger back on the auger rack and not put the blade cover on it. Put the blade cover back on it because... 
that could be the one thing that will keep me from, uh, you know, I don't want to move yet. Those little things that I was talking about. I grew up doing that. We'd put a tip up in a hole, and we'd leave it there. We'd check the bait every hour or whatever like we're supposed to. We might move them once or twice in the day, but we fish the same area in the same holes, basically making the same cast in the same spot, casting at the same dock or trolling up the same shoreline over and over and over again all day long. Drill a lot of holes. Every time I drill a hole, for me, it's like making another cast. We make thousands of casts sometimes in a day. We've drilled hundreds of holes between two of us when we're on the ice. We'll drill 80 to 150 holes a day sometimes if we need to. That's, you know, that's just what it takes because we're making a lot of casts. If the fish aren't biting and we have to go to the fish, we're going to have to drill a lot more holes. But it's going to put your lure in front of a lot more fish. And with panfish... Fishing with Tim could be exhausting in some ways because <laughs> you're always running from hole to hole to hole to hole. Yeah, and it's, it's almost as if there's a shot clock going. I think of it a lot like playing pool. You're always trying to think one move ahead, right, two moves ahead. That's how I handle ice fishing, whether it's the fish biting, um, what color am I going to switch to next, what lure am I going to switch to next. I already know. The minute I drill a hole, I know the first lure I'm going to use, and I know the second lure I'm going to use if the first one doesn't work. Uh, when I put a piece of gear out, I put it back. Um, I'll use the rod slicks, for example. Anybody seen those cloth rod covers or the, the nylon rod covers that go on the rods? You know, I, it's easy. I have a rod case with six rods in it. Take one out, take the rod slick off, toss it in the sled. Uh, and then i got to switch rods, so I grab another one, take the slick off, throw it in the sled. Now I've got stuff that's starting to spread out all over the place, and that kind of sets the tone throughout the day. You just kind of toss some stuff to, just to get yourself fishing because you'd rather be fishing than dealing with the stuff, right? So take the rod slick off, put it in the rod bag. I don't necessarily put the rod slick on because I do switch back and forth between rods, but little things like that, they add up, putting things back where they belong because some of us bring a lot of stuff on the ice, and if you take it all out and leave it all over the place, you've basically set up base camp for the day. It's the idea of this isn't, isn't to make it seem like more work. The idea is to make it seem like you're going to catch more fish because that's what we want to do. It's the whole premise behind this modern ice fishing movement was people that wanted to catch more fish. They were tired of sitting around in the middle of the day depending on the fish to come to them. So that's what this is all going to basically uh, boil down to. <laughs> he does drill a lot of holes, but he's got some good reasoning behind that. In the middle of the day, they're not going to work very hard for a meal that's this big. They're just not going to do it. It's too much energy expent versus what they're going to get back in. And when we're done, we go back and we, we recheck those old holes again because a lot of times drilling holes in an area, especially for panfish, you're sometimes you're in 8, 10, 12 feet of water, you're drilling holes, you're moving fish around. You're spooking them, but you're, you're moving them around. So what you're doing now is they're alert. They know something's going on, so you go back by and drop a jig down in front of them, and it's, it's like a whole different world to them. It's, like, it's a whole new opportunity. It's like finding new fish again. So go back and I check those old holes. We never leave an area without going back through our holes and, and rechecking them. Things like rigging multiple rods. Now, if I'm going crappie fishing, and the last time I fished I was white perch fishing, I'm going to switch all my jigs before I leave my house. I know which one of my favorites. You know, I know I like the epoxy drop, and I like the blade spoons, and I love chubby darters. Um, although I won't put the chubby darters on at home because the hooks find their way into anything that give, comes within 10 inches of them, it seems like, except fish. Um, for some reason, they can bite them and not get hooked. 
but rig multiple rods because the last thing I like to do on the ice is tie a lure this big with line that I can barely see when the wind's blowing like it is tonight and it's 20 degrees out and my hands are cold. Especially the later and later in the day we get, I'm not going to want to keep retying jigs. So I do as much of that at home as I can in the comfort of my house. Switch my jigs over, kind of builds the excitement anyways, makes it the trip that much more fun, builds some anticipation. And I'll rig those rods so when I get out there, I drop an epoxy drop down there. Ah, they're, they're looking at it, but they don't really want to bite. Let's try the blade spoon with a piece of maggot on it or some um, plastics or something. And I can just grab that out of my bag and try that one and cycle back through them if I have to. So that's one of those ways you can eliminate unnecessary steps. Tim has some good advice about fishing gear, especially the fishing rods. If you like fishing with a 36-inch lake trout rod and you're fishing with, you know, 8-ounce jigs and you got 10-pound test line on there and that's fun for you, have at it. But you're going to lose a lot of fish. You're, you're going to miss a lot of fish and your lure's not going to do what it's, what it's designed to do. We have rods today that are built like open water rods. They're 6-foot rods in miniature. They're designed to bend where they're supposed to bend as opposed to in the early days they were broken blanks stuck on cork handles and they did what they did. Uh, we didn't really have a choice. They're designed to help you with bite detection and lure control. Lures are designed to act a specific way in the water. You got to know what that is and then you have to know, be able to do it. And if your rod is too light or too heavy, you're not going to either know what's going on or be able to make that lure do what you want it to do. I start from the bottom up. When I figure out which lure I'm going to want to use, then I decide which rod in line. And I have, I don't know how many rods, but too many. Ask my wife. 26-inch rods with 4-pound tests, 28-inch rods with 5-pound tests, 24-inch rods with 2-pound tests, 24-inch rods with 3-pound tests. And it really, those rods are all set up kind of for the fish I'm fishing for, but mostly for the lures that I'm going to use them with because I want to get the most out of those lures. So like a, the, the uh, epoxy drops are 61, 64 ounce. I'll fish those with 2 or 3 pound test line on a 24 up to a 26 inch medium light. Normally I wouldn't go that heavy of a rod, but for white perch on Winnipesaukee, you want something a little beefier because they're footballs and they're strong. If I jumped up to an 8 ounce lure, that's 8 times heavier than that 164 ounce lure. I'm not going to want to put that on the same rod. It's going to load the rod up. I'm going to lose sensitivity, and I'm not going to be able to make that, that lure do what it's supposed to do. So a properly matched setup is going to help you catch more fish. Is it wrong? No. But you'll catch more fish if they're properly matched. Drop jigs are pounding, kicking actions. We've got blade spoons or any spoons are designed to be ripped up and fluttered down. We've got darters like the chubby darter that, are, that vibrate when you rip them to call fish in, and then they slowly flutter their way back down. These lures are designed to do specific things. If I put a chubby darter on a 24-inch rod with two-pound test line, and I'm doing this all day long, there's so much bend in that rod and so much stretch in that line because it's so thin that I'm going to have to jig much higher to get that lure to move the same distance than I would with if I had it on a 26-inch rod with four-pound test line. Then I get better action and better response from that lure. Tim even pays attention to where the knot is tied on his lure. So if the knot gets moved around, he thinks it affects the lure presentation. So every time you get a bite or every time you catch a fish, it's going to want to straighten that lure down so that the lure is hanging um, vertically rather than horizontally. So every time you get a bite or you catch a fish, you want to make sure you check the position of your knot, even on a spoon. The, design, the, the knot wants to be in the center of the eyelid on that spoon. And if they get pulled around to the side, that spoon might sink funny. 
Um, he's not here, but the owner of Daddy Mac Lures picked that up ice fishing. He's one of the most prolific vertical jig fishermen for striped bass that I've ever met. And he added to his seminars because he noticed such a big difference when he started checking the knots, position of the knot on his vertical jigging lures, spoons and stuff that they were using. It's very important for the action of the lure. Uh, fluorocarbon gets stiff. So fluorocarbon has pretty much the same refractive index as water. So when a light hits it, it doesn't bend it very much at all. But it gets stiff in cold weather, so it has a tendency to retain more memory. So the only time I use fluorocarbon is for my lake trout leaders because they're only about six feet long, and they're on nice, heavy lures, you know, half-ounce, three-ounce, one-ounce lures. When uh, on my panfish rods, I use um, P-line fluoroice. It's copolymer, so it's monofilament coated with fluorocarbon. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds. It's not as clear as fluorocarbon, but it is coated with fluorocarbon, so it cuts the refractive index down. It's also abrasion resistance, has very little stretch, but it straightens out really, really well. I've had phenomenal luck with that line. That's my favorite thing about it is how well it straightens out and holds up well in the cold. Now, people ask me about swivels. I don't use swivels. You'll never see me use a swivel. I should use swivels, but I don't. Some of our rods are $160 a piece, and the last thing that I want, they're custom rods, the last thing I want is one of my clients to reel a swivel up into that guide and crack the guide, right? Um, well, I don't care if it's a $30 rod. I just don't want that to happen because now we've got a broken rod we've got to deal with, and we have to go get a new rod and switch it all out, and it just becomes a pain. I would rather cut off. I mean, we're only fishing in 30 or 40 feet of water, right? I'd rather, it's easy to cut off 34. Here's the thing. In the summertime, you lose 40 feet. It affects how far you can cast. In the wintertime, who cares? As long as you've got enough line on there to handle the fish you're fishing for, cut off 40 feet of twisted line and start over again. That's, that's what I do. Um, so the, in the clam lineup, my favorite rods are the Dave Gens Legacy Series and the Jason Mitchell Gen 7. I love that Gen 7 rod. They were new last year, and that's probably my most used white perch rod is that gen 7 it's just it's got just the right action and power for me to set the hook on those whites but also get that fish up as fast as i can so that i can get back down to that school for like crappy and stuff i like the gen 7 the um the gens legacy series because they use a fly rod style guide a wire guide really easy to get the ice off of those guides just snaps right off sometimes you can i just take my glove and just wipe it up the rod and all that ice falls right off so if the Legacy Series are good, they come in a whole line, 24, 26, 28 inch. They're nice, solid graphite. So he loves his gear, but boy, does this guy love electronics. I won't. I'll drive home 45 minutes to get my Vexilar if I forget it before I walk out onto the ice without it. I love fishing with a Vexilar. It, I'll tell you, I was on the Bellamy Reservoir one day before I, the day I bought my Vexilar, my first one. I was fishing. I was doing well. I was catching some good crappie. And a gentleman walked out onto the ice, and he said he was probably, I don't know, from here to that door away. And he said, is this too close? And I was like, no, I don't, I don't care. I'm catching fish. And I thought I was doing well. And he put that Vexilar in. He drilled a hole and put a Vexilar in the hole, and he started catching three fish to my one. And I was like, what? I'd heard of them, you know, and I was like, meh, you know, waste of money. So I went I said, can I watch? He said, yeah, come on over. And I was watching, and what I noticed was he could see the fish where they were in the water column. Now, warm water fish, when they feed, they feed from below. They look up. They don't look down. So if a fish is, if you're in 25 feet of water and the fish are at 15 and you drop down to 20, they don't even know your jig's there unless one happens to chase it down. 
but if once it goes by them, a lot of times they won't, they won't go through the trouble to follow that jig down. They'll just wait for another piece of food. And I noticed that he could stop his jig, but he could see his jig on the dial. I could see it. He'd stop his jig above the fish, and the fish would come up, and he'd knew, he knew when the fish was about to bite, and then he could watch his rod tip, and he'd set the hook, and he'd reel in those fish. I packed up my stuff, and I went to Southern Soda and bought a Vexilar. Uh, I was sold, and I've easily doubled the amount of fish that I catch because it relays so much information. It tells me the depth. It tells me the bottom composition. It tells me where the fish are in the water column. Uh, it tells me where my jig is in relation to them. It tells me the mood of the fish. What I mean by that is if a fish likes my jig, you can see him race right up to it. If a fish doesn't like my jig, you'll see him kind of shy away from it or race away from it. And I know whatever I have or whatever I did isn't good, and I need to change that. The most important thing it tells me is when there are no fish under me. My dad used to say, oh, the fish just aren't biting today. That was so not true. I know it wasn't true half the time we were out there on those slow days. I know because I've been out on slow days checking hole after hole after hole with a Vexilar and not marking a single fish. So I, and, and holes that I would have spent hours fishing trying to work fish. How many people do this? You drop to the bottom, you reel up a crank. Fish, reel up a crank. Fish, yeah. I mean, that's, that's all we had, right? Well... Do you want to do that if you know there's no fish there? Who would, who's going to do that? I don't spend nearly as much time fishing in a hole that doesn't have fish under it anymore because I use a flasher now. Anybody here in avionics? It's an iPhone app or an Android app. You can do lake maps, basically GPS-enabled lake maps. Well, they have a web app, so you can pull up the exact same information at home on your computer. We do this all the time. We found one of my absolute favorite white perch spots on Lake Winnipesaukee last year using this at home. I scouted out a couple areas. I invited a friend of mine that wanted to catch a few for his family to come along. We fished a few basins. It was all in one area, and when we, the last one we fished, I, we must have caught 100 fish in that hole. And it was a place that I'd never fished on Winnipesaukee before, and I found it using this app. It has a little feature. When you zoom in close enough, you can, this, this button down here will enable, and that's the sonar charts feature. And what that does is it adds extra contour lines. It adds way more information than you do when you're zoomed out, actually down to one foot. So those contour lines are, are one foot changes. There are days when the white perch are at 27 feet, and you won't catch them at 25, and you won't catch them at 28. You've got to be at 27 feet. They're just, they'll go around something before they'll go over it and change depth. It's just the way they are sometimes. Um, you know, bluegill in the weeds, sometimes they're in 8 feet of water, uh, sometimes they're in 10 feet of water. We've got to fish our way into them. And it's really important. When you figure out what depth they're at, you'll notice that you'll catch them, at least for that span of time, all in the same, re relatively same depth uh, within a, a foot or two. Well, having these one-foot increments to do some scouting or even on my, on my phone or on my, I have a Lowrance that I mount on the snowmobile. I use the, the plotter with an avionics chip so we can mark waypoints and we can track routes and see where we've been and remember where we've been and just a really, really uh, important tool for me as, an, as a, an angler in general. But fall scouting, I know it's a little late for this now, but come next fall, keep in mind you can find out a lot of information in the late fall and the bite is phenomenal for crappie in the fall. I mean they school up and they start to feed just like they do in the wintertime and they get big. Uh, but you can also go out and find submerged weed beds submerged structure, stuff that's underneath the water that you can come back to in the wintertime, and you can, you can mark it if you have the app. 
can mark a waypoint on the app or drop a pin and come back to it in the wintertime. Cameras are so fun, and you can learn a ton. Um, Scott Brower, the owner of Mackie Plastics, tells a story about how a bluegill, a bull bluegill, a mature bluegill, when he comes up to a lure, will take water and he'll puff it at your lure. So you see your lure do this. If you jerk it away, try to set the hook thinking it's a bite, that fish won't eat it. But if that lure swings away and comes back naturally, the, that bull will eat it. He learned that watching him on camera. Absolutely. Um, Lake Trout, we were fishing during the derby one year, and we had fish coming in and going away, and coming in and going away, and they were driving us nuts. We couldn't get them to bite. My buddy was in Braun Bay. He fishes with cameras. I called him up, had him on the phone. I'm jigging. Like, we can't get him to bite. He says, oh, yeah, we're watching them on camera. If you lift your jig off the bottom, they spook. you got to keep it laying on the bottom and just twitch it a little bit without, it, without actually lifting it on the bottom. I said, i got to go. i got to fish on. I never would have found that out. He knew that because he was watching them take off every time they'd lift their jig on the camera. However, camera's got, what, 30, 40 feet of line, cord you've got to lower down. Then you've got to find your jig. Have you ever done that? It sucks. <laughs> you know why it sucks for me? Because by the time I get it, we've wanted to do it for white perch, especially when we're filming episodes for uh, white perch ice fishing, because I bet that looks insane down there. <coughs> But knowing how quickly those schools can move along, when we get into a school like that, the last thing anybody's going to do is try to set up a camera. Because by the time you're done, they're gone. So it's more like an anchor to me. I love the fish phone. I think it's great. It uses, uh, it's portable. Uh, Vexlar makes it. And it uses, creates a Wi-Fi signal, so it sends the footage to your phone. You can take stills. You can record right to your phone or your iPad. I love it. It's not super high-resolution images, but for doing like picture-in-picture picture or for watching fish behavior. It's really fun. We did some really cool stuff last December with shallow water trout. We were putting it up shallow, pointing back at us, and watching these male and female brookies, huge brookies, come swimming by, and the males would swim right on. The females would come right in behind them and eat it. So cool to watch that. But most of the time, I just can't bring myself to put them down there. But for species like lake trout, you will learn a ton uh, watching those fish on a camera. Time. So crappie and bluegill, I kind of lumped them together because they're almost, where there's one, there's usually the other uh, pretty close by, if not in the same areas. We were out uh, over the weekend, and we were catching uh, crappie and bluegill, suspended bluegill. They were feeding really aggressively. It was a lot of fun. So we were catching them both and just waiting for the crappie to school through and uh, catching bluegills while we waited, nice big ones. But key areas for me, if I were to go to a new spot, a new pond I'd never fished looking for crappie, I'd look for basins. That's just what we look for because that's where they're going to be during low light conditions, early in the morning, late in the day, uh, or on really overcast days, days that they're going to feed all day long. They're going to feed in those basins. Plankton's going to come out of the, rise out of the substrate in low light, especially anybody here have a Vexilar or a flasher, sonar flasher that they use through the ice? Notice in the afternoon, just before dark, you start to get all this, all this interference on it. That's plankton. That's the plankton rising out of the substrate. Well, the bait fish come in to, to filter feed on that plankton. In some of the smaller ponds that have crappie and white perch, they will also, if there's enough plankton, Kingston Lake's a prime example. Have you ever been crappie or bluegill fishing or even white perch in a small pond? You're throwing your fish on the ice, and a few minutes later, and there's like this black goop that they're puking up. That's plankton. They're filter feeding on that plankton. And if the bait fish come in, they'll also feed on those. The suspended fish, so like I said, early and late and overcast days are going to be in those basins chasing the plankton and the bait fish. But in the middle of the day, when things start to slow down, when they're done feeding, 
they're going to head for weeds and structure. The bluegill, they love the weeds. Crappie love structure. I cannot say that enough. Crappie love structure to the point that people throw Christmas trees in lakes that they're creating crappie structure. They build funny little PVC contraptions in buckets full of cement and drop them to the bottoms of the lakes. I'm telling you, you find something like that in a lake that has crappie, and in the middle of the day, that's where those fish are going to be. They're going to be on that structure, which is where the fall scouting comes in handy. If you happen to be fishing and you notice that you're getting hung up out in the middle of the you know, 8 to 10 feet of water, there's some tree or something down that you get hung up on. Make a note of that and come back there in the wintertime. In the middle of the day, there's going to be crappie on that structure. Uh, the weeds, again, we say small moves. This is, uh, this is another inside turn, and this is a place that's flat. So this is about 10 or 11 feet of water out here, and it comes up to nothing. And I would start deep if I were fish looking for bluegill, because there's more than likely going to be weeds on these flats, because the flats receive a lot of sun uh, in the in the summer, spring and summertime, and there's a lot of weed growth there. And I'm going to drill in a zigzag pattern, and I'm going to come up shallow as I do it every four or five feet. I'm going to try to get at least a foot shallower every time I drill a hole. Sometimes it's a little bit more than that. You know, it's not rocket science, but I'm basically just in search mode, and I'm going to keep going, drilling in that zigzag pattern until I start to find fish. And then I'm going to go a little further, because I always want to find more fish. So if, when I get to the point where I start to find less fish, then I can go back, and I know those fish are at this depth. And then I can follow this contour around and see, are they holding at that same depth? As long as there are weeds there, they usually are. And they're in there because plankton will also uh, be in around those weeds, but the bait fish are going to go in there to hide. And there's a lot of oxygen around those weeds. So, you know, come February and March, any green weeds that you can find, it's going to be crappie and bluegill on those because they're going to be starved for oxygen, and that, those weeds are still going to be given off the oxygen. So my dad taught me how to ice fish, ice fish on Great Bay. I taught him how to ice fish on the lakes. Um, later in life, when he was getting older, he, the smelt fishing, if you know anything about Great Bay, is, well, there are none, really. Um, so he hadn't ice fished in years, and I started bringing him out uh, when he was getting older. He had dementia, and so I'd bring him out on the lakes uh, ice fishing for crappie. And he could never get over the fact what we would do is we knew this one brush pile that we would fish, and we would just drill two lines of holes, and you were allowed six lines apiece, and he'd set his... He'd have little jig rods, and he'd set one in each hole. He'd have six of them. He could never figure out why one of us would have that one hole. And these, three, these holes were three feet apart. That one hole was catching fish. Three feet away, there was a hole that wasn't catching anything. And if he got stuck with one of those holes, he'd go bananas. He couldn't figure out why. Well, here's the thing. How far are you going to go when you're, when you're or let's say you're not hungry, how much work are you going to put into a meal that big? Right? I mean, they're just not going to work. Warm water fish, crappie and bluegill, their preferred water temperature is 58 to 68 degrees. So ice fishing, we're talking 35, 36, 37 degree water. It's cold. Everything slows way down. So their energy in has to equal or exceed the energy that they put out. Otherwise, they won't do it. And they know, just like we do. You know, I haven't eaten all day. I certainly can't go jogging. I need to eat something because I'm going to get, you know, that low blood sugar, icky Snickers bar commercial feeling. They're the same way. How far are they going to swim for that little time? They're certainly not going to swim 20 feet for it. So they could be sitting there on a piece of structure watching your jig bounce up and down in the middle of the day. They've already eaten. It's the middle of the day. They, their eyes, uh, their pupils don't, don't constrict like ours do. 
it takes them much longer to adjust to the sun, which is another reason like bass will hide underneath docks because they can see. And it takes longer for their eyes to adjust. That's why lake trout go deep on a sunny day. Uh, these fish are all going to try to try to deal with that sun by getting into the cover. That and the fact that the energy out will, would exceed the energy in, you're going to have to put that jig right in front of them. If you put it there and it's the right jig or it invades their space and pisses them off the right way, they're going to eat it. They're going to be able to trigger that, that bite response. So we drill a lot of holes. We drill them really close together. We'll get in an area the size of this room and it'll be Swiss cheese by the time we're gone when we're crappie or bluegill fishing because we're just trying to, one, we're moving fish around the whole time, and two, we're, it's the middle of the day and we're trying to put the lure in front of enough fish. I mean, if, you know, if, if a lure comes down and the fish decides he's not going to eat it, you can bounce it in front of him all day long and hit him on the face with it. Once he's decided he's not going to eat it, game's over. So we'll drill another hole. So we'll drill another hole and we'll punch out an area and make a lot of small moves before we move on. Um, I've been a big fan of that epoxy drop ever since it came out. Don't ask me if it's the gem. I have no idea. Um, I know that it works. It works for all warm water fish. It works in March. The majority of our lake trout are caught on that the last two weeks of March. For some reason, if they see it, they'll eat it. doesn't matter. What, if it's sunny, if it's cloudy, it doesn't matter. In the last two weeks of March on Lake Winnipesaukee, if a lake trout sees that jig, which is convenient because that's the one I like the best for white perch, so we catch a lot of both. It makes things pretty interesting. But I like the blade spoon. Um, eighth ounce or sixteenth ounce blade spoons. They come with treble hooks on them, so you either have to swap them out with like a, oh, a size 10 sawash hook, or what I do is just take a pair of wire cutters and clip two of the points off that treble hook and just use that. I have some that went all through last winter like that, and they held up just fine, and we caught plenty of fish on them. It's much easier than trying to switch out those little tiny hooks with those little tiny split rings. Uh, it's kind of it goes back to, you know, keep it easy. I guarantee you, you know, I start out in the best mood, and by the, about the 15th lure, I'm in the worst mood ever. Um, chubby darters, the Selmo chubby darter, that thing is a crappy killer. That is one of the best crappy lures I've ever seen in my life. I have no idea what it is. I've used others like it, but I think Chuck will agree. That is by far one of my favorite crappy lures. The only thing I don't like about it is... I'm telling you, you get anything besides a fish within 10 inches of that thing, and it's gonna, those hooks are going to end up your clothes, your gloves. You go to try to touch the lure, and the next thing you know, you got a hook stuck in your glove, your pants, you, your rod cases, you name it. Those hooks get stuck on everything. I, so we miss fish with them, and we're like, how can these fish not get hooked on these things when everything else does? A, so a size 3 is my favorite size in the Chubby Daughter, and the size 4 um, is when you're in or when you want to target really big crappie, we'll switch over to a size four and only you'll only get those bigger fish. You'll get a lot that will look at it, uh, but uh, they won't eat it. This is new this year from Clam. That's called the drop kick jig. One thing, it's got great action. This was uh, one of Dave Genz's babies for the last three years. He'd been working on this lure for three years before they finally got it right to where he'd let Clam release it to the public. Um, and he nailed it. I mean. One important thing when you're fishing shallow for bluegills, leave some of that slush in your hole because what you have, you clear that hole out nice and nice and clean. You've got this great column of light shining right down through underneath your hole that will kind of keep the fish away. Uh, if you leave a little bit of slush in there, it helps, it helps cut down some of that column of light. And these jigs, if you leave enough slush in there and not too much slush, will punch through that slush and it will get right back down there again.
and the Dingle Drop. It's a funny name, but Bluegill love that little thing. It's unbelievable. I didn't think it was going to make it through the entire first year after Clem released it, but it's been a huge hit. It's a fish catcher, so we use them. Um, we tip them mostly with spikes or plastics. Um, sometimes worm, but not too often. Anybody not know what spikes are? Maggots. I think they call them spikes, so our wives will let us put them in the fridge. I'm not sure. Oh, Tim, wealth of information on all subjects. Awesome. Uh, lots of info. We're going to take a little musical break here. This is from our good friend Spencer Albee up north in northern New Hampshire. Song so bad. We're gonna move on to white perch. I love to fish for basins. When when the white perch, white perch are nomadic. They're just like they're members of the same members of the fam members of the same family as striped bass. They're the closest living relative of the striped bass. They feed just like them. They work together. Uh, they corral bait. They ambush bait. They work together to do it. They're they're hierarchical, so there'll be some bigger fish under the bottom. Let the smaller fish do all the work, and then capitalize on what they've done. Uh, and then they head to the basins. Then they'll head to the basins and feed, but when they're done, a lot of times, they'll just lay on the bottom in the basins. So we love basins. We'll, we'll go out and we'll, we'll scout on an area that might have, they'll have as many basins that we can fish in a day. And we'll keep fishing from one to the next until we find the fish. And we've got some, you know, some regular go-to spots because of that. Um, there have been days, well, that... That one day that I talked about, we did some scouting, and I took a friend of mine out to catch a few for his family. Um, we got, we fished, I think, four basins. We got two or three white perch, and then there was the last one that I had scouted out. I said, we're going to move over to this other basin. I'm going to drill a couple holes, eat my sandwich, and figure out what our next move is. It's 12.30 in the afternoon. I drilled two holes. I put the Vexilar in. There was nothing there. I, now, the water in Winnipesaukee is crystal clear. I dropped my jig in the water, and the minute that jig hit the water, the red lines on the Vexilar started to stack up 
like a Christmas tree. It was just unbelievable. Those fish were all on the bottom and on the sides of that basin. And the minute they saw that jig coming down, they all came right in. And they're so competitive that they'll swim up 25 feet, 30 feet, and they'll have six of them that'll break off, and they'll just come flying up to eat it. I ate my sandwich three hours later. That's why I love fishing basins for white perch, because they hold fish. There are times when we're f looking for suspended crappie that we'll, we'll just put the vexilar in a hole. We'll drill a bunch of hole and just check because we're looking for fish that are active that are suspended off the bottom. While with the white perch, we make sure we fish every single hole. Uh, we, we target basins. When I go out, I target basins that are 30 feet deep in the middle. So they might only come up, you know, 5 feet on the sides. They might come up 15 feet on the sides. But I'm looking for those depressions, just places just like this that are 30 feet 40 feet. We've caught white perch as deep as 60 feet in basins. 15-foot basins don't typically hold as many fish. The 30-foot, I think 27 feet was a magic number last, last ice fishing season. We caught more fish in 27-foot basins than, than anything. It was, I don't know if it was pressure or water temperature or, or what, but that was, was the magic number last year. Even on when they were, they were on the move and we'd fish break lines and stuff, we'd catch them in 27 feet of water a lot. Well, if the fish want to be at 27 feet, say the smelt want to be at 27 feet, perch are going to be at 27 feet because that's what they're feeding on in Winnipesaukee. So anywhere the smelt go, the white perch are going to go. So that's one thing to look for when you're looking for white perch is clouds of smelt. And they show up just like that plankton does. They'll start as all these green lines on the vexilar, and they'll turn to orange, and you've got this red mass, and then they kind of filter out the same way they came in. And I, luckily, or ideally, there'll be all these big fat red lines left behind when the smelt clear out. And those are the white perch that are chasing that school of smelt. If you're in a basin, a lot of times, they'll try to keep those fish, those bait fish, in that basin. So they'll, you just sit in one spot, and they'll cycle back around. I've had clients catch limits of white perch sitting in the same hole that, they drilled, that I drilled for them first thing in the morning. Because those fish just kept cycling around. They just kept that school of smelt trapped in that basin. But they're nomadic. So when they're out looking for food, they will, they'll, they'll travel miles. We fished on Winnipesaukee one day, and we had a school of fish come through. And they were, I love telling the story because it was so cool to experience. There were five of us fishing in a line. We would figured out what depth they were cruising at. But it was slow. We were just kind of picking away at them. And all of a sudden, one guy to the, the furthest guy to the south started catching fish. Next thing you know, he's hammering them. Then the second guy's catching fish. Then he's hammering them. Then the third guy's catching fish. It was clearly a school of, of white perch moving up. Then the first guy, all of a sudden, you know, everybody's catching fish. And then the first guy stops and so on. That school of fish moved from south to north. I went back that afternoon on a hunch. I wondered, are those fish going to come back down the way they went up in the morning like deer? Sure enough, after about two hours of fishing, I started just crushing the white perch. And then they were gone. And I moved 100 yards and drilled a couple more holes. A couple minutes later, crushing them again. Drilled 100, you know, another 100 yards down, drilled a couple more holes, crushing them again. I followed that school of white perch for a mile and a half. There was a guy standing at the end of it where it turned to go out into the main lake watching me. He'd been watching me for a while out his window. And he, was, he came out and he said, Do you, are you intentionally following this school of fish? And then I said, well, it started as a hunch. And then eventually, yeah, I was able to, to just kind of stay on him. So if you get a school of fish that comes in out of nowhere, you've, and they're on, they're on a, a break line like this, and they're traveling up a shoreline or something, you've got a 50-50 shot if you're by yourself. You've got to pick a direction. But if you pick right, you can stay on those fish for a long time because they'll just keep moving along, just following that bait. In Winnipesaukee, they're eating smelt. Like I said, they're primarily that's, that's all they're eating is, is smelt. Uh, part of the reason that our 
white perch. If you don't know, we have some of the largest white perch anywhere in North America that live in Lake Winnipesaukee. The reason they're so big is water quality and space, but smelt. Smelt have, have unusually high lipid contents. And the unique thing about them is a smelt this big has almost the same lipid content as a smelt this big. So if you're trying to intake, and our, our smelt in Winnipesaukee average about three inches. So if you're trying to intake as many lipids, because lipids mean energy and growth, as you can, are you going to chase the giant schools of small smelt that you can eat tons of, or the giant schools of big smelt that you can't eat as many of? We have a lot of small smelt in Winnipesaukee, so they're able to intake much, much higher lipid contents, which contributes to their high growth and their big size, especially in March when the sun starts to get higher in the sky and the daylight gets longer and we start to get uh, a little bit of snow melt and some of our precipitation falls in the form of rain as opposed to snow, they're getting some fresh water. Well, that, that little increase in oxygen kind of revives them and lets them know that the spawn is not that far away and they become very active and they feed very aggressively to take in as much energy as they can before they spawn because they, they'll spawn out pretty much all in like one day in one area. And it's, it's a massive uh, output of energy for them. So they try to take in as much energy as they can. They get really, really big and, and really fun. Uh, they form bigger schools as the season progresses. And like I said, they work together. If they're on the move, be prepared to move a lot. Like I said, a mile and a half sometimes to stay on that school of fish, and then eventually there's just you know I didn't I had no idea where they went. On smaller ponds, it's a little easier because they don't have as much room, and they're more con they're more constricted to what they can eat. They're gonna they're gonna go to the basins a lot, just like the crappie do, because that's where the that's where the uh, plankton and the bait fish are gonna be in early in the morning and later in the afternoon. So the white perch will just show up. There are places that. Uh, Patuckaway is an infamous one. There's, there's some really nice white perch in Patuckaway, and you can fish there for weeks and not catch one. And when they move in, you might catch six of them, and then they're gone, and you might not catch them again for weeks. That's just, just how they are. Uh, they're nomadic, so they're always moving around. If you can find a school of hungry white perch, especially in a basin, and you can trigger that bite and get them to go into a frenzy, it doesn't matter what you put down there. You could drop a penny with a hook on it and no bait, and they're going to eat it. When we have clients out and we get into one of these frenzies, we just stop baiting hooks. Just drop the jig back down there. They're, gonna, they're so competitive, they're going to eat anything that moves. Anything they can fit in their mouth that's moving, they'll race up and try to beat each other to get it. This usually when we switch over to the blade spoons, they're a little bit heavier because they sink faster, and we want the bigger fish, so we're usually trying to get down through the school, which is almost impossible when they're in a frenzy. You cannot get your jig down to the bottom of that school. So we'll switch over to a little bit heavier one and try. Let it sink as fast as we can. Just, just let it free spool off a spinning rod and try to get down right to the bottom if we can, and then reel it up a couple of cranks to get to the bottom of that school and try to get some of those bigger fish. But when they go, take your photos later. Um, seriously, you know, especially if you're going to keep a few fish, take your photos later. But don't think that if you get into an, into an area, I don't want to mislead you in thinking that there's like this endless supply, because we've noticed uh, when we hit the same basin over and over and over again, the more we hit it, the harder of a time. By the end of the season, those fish have either moved on or we've, you know, you take three home every time you go there and you go there 20 times, you know, you've taken 60 fish out of there. These aren't schools of hundreds of thousands in one school, you know what I mean? It's big schools, but you have to be selective, and that's why having a number of spots is good. But take your photos later, unless you're going to release fish. Um, 
if you get into one of these frenzies, I suggest drilling a hole somewhere away from the basin because eventually you're send, sending all these distressed fish back down and they get it they, and they'll shut off and they'll stop biting. Um, if you're keeping fish, it's not that big of a deal, but I mean, if you're in a school and you can catch 103 hours, you're not going to be able to keep them all anyway, so it, you're going to eventually spook that school of fish. Um, so these are my favorite lures. I will be fishing an epoxy drop or a clam blade spoon anytime you see me on Lake Winnipesaukee fishing for white perch. There won't be anything else tied on my, on my rod because they just love it. And usually, like I said, the reason we switch to the blade spoons, two reasons. One, to get it to the bottom of a school when there's a big school going off. Two, when they're finicky, you'll have to pound the bottom. So drop that lure right to the bottom and just jig it up and let it free fall back down to the bottom. Do that two or three times. If there are white perch around that can see it, one of them is going to come over and eat it. That just drives them crazy for some reason. Perch pounding, it works for yellow perch too, but works really well for the white perch. I usually fish white, uh, but some days on the dark days, the green ones work. And like I said, some days, once you get them fired up, it doesn't matter what color it is. Just get that jig back down there. But we tip them with spikes. Um, and actually more, more worms than spikes with the, with the white perch. You go through much less bait. It's much easier to take. We carry dillies with us. And then we only put enough bait on to hide the hook. That's all we're doing. It's just a little bit of tiny, tiny piece on there. And you're, I mean, one worm will last you an hour, you know, because you're just taking quarter-inch pieces, hiding that hook, drop it back down there, and that's all it takes. To get any more than that, they pull it off the hook, and you miss a lot of fish. They'll eat it, but you lose a ton of fish because they're so good at ripping the worm off the hook. They just grab the end of it and, and just slide it right off. The general rule of thumb is bright days, bright colors, dark days, dark colors. Um, when you get into stained water, you want to use more neutral colors. Um, red triggers bites faster than most other colors, but it's also the first color to disappear in the, water, in the color spectrum to fish. So as they move, as your lure gets farther and farther away, red's the first one to disappear and they can't see it anymore. So red ones are good for triggering bites, but they're not good for pulling fish in. It's got to be close. Um, greens and pinks in stained water uh, or on overcast days work really well because they're more neutral. The fish can see them easier. But in crystal clear water, like on Winnipesaukee or Pleasant Lake, um, even White Lake for trout, we fish white lures because it shows, or reflective lures. Here's, a, re, here's the thing about reflective lures, shiny lures, silver, um, gold. They reflect the available light. So if it's really dark, they turn dark. If it's really bright, they shine really bright. Uh, large lakes see a phenomenon of warmer water to the north. What happens in the fall when the lakes are turning over, you get those predominant north winds. Well, cold water is more dense than warm water. It's heavier. So the wind can actually push that cold water south. Anybody really familiar with Lake Winnipesaukee can tell you that there's more sand and less weeds in Alton Bay than there are in Moultonboro Bay. That's because the water is typically warmer up there. So a warm water fish, like a crappie or a bluegill or a white perch, who prefers 58 to 68 degree water. If they can find water that's a degree warmer than it is in the south part of the lake, where do you think they're going to go? You know, it's like the difference between 5 and 10 degrees to us. It's, it's a big difference to them. So, yeah, the north end of Winnipesaukee, definitely. You know, big lakes like Newfound and Squam, the north end, you're definitely going to see more warm water fish up there, more of the warm water species. Smaller ponds, doesn't really have that effect. They, uh, they equalize, equalize pretty well, and it's pretty much the same. 
doesn't matter north or south. I have seen Tim talk about ice fishing a couple of times and also just on the ice as we were talking through things. He has one story that I've often enjoyed because it talks about the effect of weather on fishing. We were uh, fishing on Winnipesaukee and beautiful bluebird, bright sunny day, and we looked to the south and it looked like somebody had drawn a line in the sky and covered everything to the south gray. And Mark said, what do you think, and it was headed our way, and Mark said, what do you think is going to happen when that cloud cover gets over us? I said, I think we're going to catch some fish. And we were picking away and eating some food and having some laughs, and then the cloud cover started to come over, and Mark said, well, what do you think, Tim? And I looked down, and my Vexilar has auto range. It automatically tells you the depth, and it said we were in 40 feet of water. Automatically changed to set to 27 feet. And I was like, what the heck? Fish had moved in. There were so many fish under us that the Vexilar thought that we were only in 27 feet of water. And within an hour, there were four guys catching fish laughing. That was all you could do. It's just there were so many fish, and we were spread. We were in a big area. We were spread, I don't know, probably 50 yards apart, and that's how big that school of fish was. We caught, oh, my God, we caught so many fish um, and some giant, giant fish, three pounds. Two of those fish were over three pounds. The two that I'm holding there, that one was 3.1, the other one was 3.2. Uh, really fun day. Those are the days that will keep me fishing for white perch on days when I should be home, in bed with my wife. Well, not in bed with my wife, but home with my wife. <laughs> Sorry, that didn't come out right. Uh, Tim, we're never going to let you live that one down. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks for coming. And that is it. That's it. Uh, and, you know, before we wrap up, Dave, we'd really love to hear from listeners to hear how this advice helped, uh, helped you guys catch more fish. So if you were successful in ice fishing for panfish, come back to Facebook, give us a message, tell us you want, if you want more stuff like this less stuff like this. Let us know what you think of Tim Moore Outdoors and his uh, seminars. Absolutely. Or if you just want to email us, it's easy. Dave at fishnerds.com or clay at fishnerds.com. Simple. Simple. And then we will report back what people think of Tim's advice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Special thanks to Tim for recording his segments at Fishing Game. Really appreciate the support. Yep. Also, a big thank you to New Hampshire Fishing Game and Mark Beauchene. And until next time, follow the code of the fish nerds. Spawn early and often. Right. <laughs> Avoid free lunches with strings attached. I, I was coming to that. Avoid free lunches with strings attached. <laughs> and swim against the current every chance you get. <laughs> Um, I, I've been told that Ospie Lake has white perch in it. I've never fished it. I just, I know people that have gone there to fish for them. Um, you ever hear of the fish nerds? They, uh, they, one of them, Clay, he loves to fish up there.